Next Chapter Podcasts. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, my name is Michael Goodfriend, and I'm the executive producer of the Play On Podcasts. Dorcas Lung is with me. She is an actress from New York who plays Juliet in the Play On podcast series, Romeo and Juliet, and she's agreed to be part of our bonus content interview series for this Play On podcast series. She describes herself as a left-handed actress based in New York. She got her start singing at church and in choir But it wasn't until following a crush led her to audition for her first musical in middle school. Since then, she's gone on to perform in Broadway's Miss Saigon, Off-Broadway's Midsummer, the first national tour of Hamilton as Eliza, Angelica, Peggy and Maria, and The Tale of Desperou and Les Miserables. She played Cosette regionally. Her television credits include CBS's Bull and Madam Secretary and she appeared in the 2012 film Bindlestiffs. It is my pleasure to welcome Dorcas Long to this interview. Dorcas, hello. Hi. How did you know and, all that? Well, I will say that our intrepid producer, Pete Musto, does our guest research, and he puts together these little biographies. So somehow he got that from whatever was online. Isn't that interesting? Oh, the internet. <laughs> Yes, the internet reports everything, even things we don't know about ourselves. <laughs> okay, Dorcas, so you are left-handed. Let's let's get the I facts am. straight. Yeah. Yes, right. that is true. That is true. How has that helped you in your career? <laughs> um, being left-handed is definitely something I think that other left-handers point out to you all the time. If you see somebody in a rehearsal that's also left-handed, everyone's so quick to be like, me too. So I think it's a it's a very nice biological bonding moment for people. And then, you know, the the rumors are true. I think a lot of left-handers are very creative, um, have lots of interest in probably the arts and performance. So yeah, lots of us here. Well, we have that in common. I am also left-handed. Awesome. Yes, and uh, I agree. It's a great conversation starter. And, you know, we do see the world a little bit differently because so many mm-hmm. people are right-handed. That's true. But I think that uh, the left versus right is kind of, getting more and more dissipated as technology keeps taking leaps beyond our collective abilities. It's true. Yeah. I like remember, you know, growing up people being like, do you need left-handed scissors? And I think I've always grown up using right-handed scissors just because I was like, oh, this is what's available to me at the moment. But like, you know, everyone kind of technology in general has elevated so that everything feels like more equal footing. So yeah, I don't feel like it's ever really hindered me. And was it a crush that really did lead you to become an actor? It was a crush. Um, he is my best friend still. And oh. he we um, he wanted to do Music Man in middle school. So I was like, well, if Patrick's going to do it, I definitely want to spend more time with him. Um, Patrick is not interested in women. 
So now at this point, you know, um, our hopes and dreams of being together forever romantically are not necessarily going to happen, but um, best friends forever. When did you discover Shakespeare? Has Shakespeare always been a part of your work as an actor? So I have a very strong musical theater background. So I do a lot of um, contemporary, classic, traditional musical theater. Over the pandemic, my husband, he we met in school and he was also a classical actor mostly. So while I was a musical theater actor, he's a classical actor. We both do similar things, but in very different veins. And over the pandemic, he was taking an online class with Ron Daniels. Um, who has been one of the artistic directors at the RSC, is also just a phenomenal Shakespeare teacher. And Ron was offering these incredible classes um, for, you know, four weeks to six weeks at a time. And you would work on different pieces in kind of a salon setting. So you would have other people with you giving you feedback, also saying like, oh, this is what I heard when you did it this time. So uh, Oliver, my husband, would be doing them in our other room, and I would like kind of sneak in and hear and be like, oh, that's really interesting. Because I took Shakespeare in college, but it wasn't something that I personally was like, oh, I, I want to pursue full-heartedly, I suppose. Um, so during the pandemic, after like, you know, Oliver would tell me all these amazing things he learned in class, I was like, you know, I should sign up for this. Like, I want to get out of my comfort zone and work with text and, you know, maybe revisit something that I don't necessarily feel great at and like it would be so outside of what I usually do so like why don't I do that so I signed up for a class with Ron and the morning of our first session we were scheduled to be together for a month he let me know that every single person in the class had just somehow canceled and weren't mm -hmm. able to take the class for the next month um life happens you know yeah. so I ended up having private one-on-one -on -one sessions with Ron for every Saturday for the next month and we worked on Juliet which is like wow. such a, you know, circular story, I suppose. And yeah, it was, it was so fun. And so like, um, logic puzzle, like, like I love puzzles and I love to like, like figure out like, okay, so if I use this word here, what does it do to the rest of the sentence? Mm -hmm. I think there were some benefits in me not having maybe the most, um, training, in terms of doing Shakespeare, because I didn't think I had very many rules to follow. So I just didn't follow any rules. I just said the things that they felt like they meant to me in that moment. Um, and in that, I found that I was really also like so um, pleasantly surprised at how much of it equated to my musical theater training, because it's so musical. And so like, how do I make these phrases sound like one whole thing? And then how do I chop up the next thing for you to really feel like the same way you would feel a phrase of music? So yeah, it, it, I think Shakespeare in a lot of ways is like, you know, when you're like a dancer, ballet is like your, your fundamentals, your like technique fundamentals. And like, yeah. I've always loved ballet, even though I'm not an amazing dancer by any means, but it's always felt like logically, um, satisfying to me and I think Shakespeare in the same way feels that way it's like these are the fundamentals these are the techniques you can use to also like do so many other things in your career so yeah it's been really fun to do you started out singing is that mm -hmm. right you so singing was your first love yes for sure where did you discover that you loved singing how did you discover it how <laughs> like these memories I was talking to my friends about this last week of having like singing sing-offs on the playground and mm. like 
you know, having another kid with me on the playground and being like, okay, let's choose this song. It's going to be, um, the 18s were super popular when I was growing up. Like we'll sing this and then we'll have everyone around us vote. So it's like, like playground <laughs> idol basically. Yeah, yeah. And so I loved doing that and I love to sing and I still love to sing. I, so I started doing that. And then, um, my dad was the pastor at our church. So one of the things that I got to do was like sing on Sundays. Oh. They'd be like, Dorcas is the soloist this week. Um, and then, you know, up until middle school, like I said, I I did choir. And then middle school is the first time I was able to do a musical because they offered it. And so seventh grade was my first musical and it was The Music Man. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then did you do musicals only in school, in 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 uh, middle school and high school, or did you start doing community theater? Did you start doing any professional theater as a, as a kid? Yeah, so I was really lucky in that my public school was very serious about musical theater. Um, I don't know how that happened. I mean, we obviously, I grew up in Texas, so football is a big thing, and they got plenty of support too. But amazingly enough, like, our high school theater department was really, really supported. Um, we did two big musicals a year, plus a smattering of plays during the year. We had a black box theater. I think there's like, you know, funding is obviously like a big part of being able to do public school theater. And we were just very lucky to be able to have the funding to do it. Um, Cause it was all free. Like, I, I don't think I would be able to do what I do today if I was not able to have the support, financial support from my community to be able to do it. Cause like dance lessons, acting lessons, like music, voice lessons are expensive. So mm -hmm. being able to be supported like that and like have that community and be so um, like, I was in it. So, so theater at my high school, like before the year would start two weeks before the school year would start, we would have like a staging and blocking and dance rehearsal for two weeks straight. So I would be at school from nine to six in August before school started in preparation for the winter musical. But like, you know, that was theater boot camp for me and I loved it. I made so many memories and I also learned like discipline. Um, I learned how to treat others, whether whatever role you're playing, um, how you're involved with the production. I learned how to sign in. Like, you know, there, there are these like little things that you kind of don't think about. Um, that also go with the art itself. And I was able to like have a safe space to learn how to do it before I went into the real world. Signing mm -hmm. in, meaning like literally initialing the sheet when you go into rehearsal. Exactly. Yeah. Like being able to go to a call board where like, you know, mm -hmm. all the information of the day is held, letting you know, this is like what we're running today. Um, right. This is who's needed today. And then like doing the responsibility of signing myself in to say like, Hey, I'm here. Right. You know, Which is important. Like Otherwise, the, the casting, I'm sorry, not the casting director, but the uh, stage manager needs to know that you're there somewhere in the building, because if right. you're not, they need to find you or they need to plan around you. <laughs> yeah, right? it's true. It's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually pretty essential. And you find out really quickly in professional theater what happens if you don't sign in. Yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> there's hazing and then there are literal fines that start getting levied by the union yeah it's true so okay did you do formal training after you graduated from high school when you went into college did you major yeah. in theater so I went to the University of Oklahoma um, I grew up in Houston so Oklahoma's uh, a quick eight-hour drive away mm -hmm. and quick um, for Texas exactly 
yeah, I majored in musical theater. I got my BFA there. And Oklahoma was great. I think that I wanted a, I wanted a school, you know, I'm not necessarily like a huge sports fan, but I wanted like the, the collegiate experience. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to go somewhere where I would meet people that weren't theater majors. I wanted to take classes that weren't necessarily necessary for my major. And I wanted like a quad. I wanted to be able to ride my bike up and down South Oval, things like that. <laughs> so, yeah. So you went to uh, University of Oklahoma, you got your BFA, and then you were like, that's it, I'm ready, I'm going to go to New York. Yeah, so my my wow. program, luckily enough, does a showcase. Uh, we showcased in New York my senior year of college. And then right after that, I was like, I think I'm ready to move. I'm going to take the next step and move. Packed my bags, two suitcases that equaled exactly 50 pounds, and then um, got to New York. Yeah. And did you have an agent at that point because of the showcase? I did. Um, I was fortunate that my agents had signed me through like word of mouth. I had lots of friends that had recommended me. So it was nice. And when we met, it was like a, it was a great match at that time. So it was, yeah, I, I feel fortunate in that way that I was able to like move here and be able to start working almost immediately. And now you are on Broadway. Yeah, I'm about to be again. Yeah. What number of shows will this be for Broadway for you? This will be my second, but okay. I will be accomplishing a goal of mine, which I'm really excited, which is to originate on Broadway. This has been like one of my, like, yeah, five to 10 year goals. So that's exciting. And what are you originating as in? <laughs> oh, yeah. So I'm coming uh, back to Broadway in The Notebook, the musical, which is um, written by Becca Brunstetter and Ingrid Michelson. And I will be originating a role that they wrote for the show. Her name's Georgie. Um, if you know listeners the notebook is this famous love story between noah and Allie. if you've seen the movie and the character is written as be one of noah's best friends and this this character was not in the movie Mm-mm, nope they wrote it specifically for you to play <laughs> i don't know about specifically <laughs> for me but specifically like, for how can show. we get darkest long into this <laughs> <laughs> if only everyone thought that way <laughs> well that's just wonderful congratulations when you thanks open. Uh, yeah, we open next year, February, we start previews, um, and then official opening is in March 2024. So how did you meet or get to know Dustin Wills, the director of the Play on Podcast series of Romeo and Juliet, and Hansel mm-hmm. Young, who did the translation? Yeah, so I auditioned. Um, I actually, I I met Hansel at closing night of K-pop the Musical, which closed last year, Um and I had heard she was doing this translation of the play and bravery struck me. And I said, hey, I'd really like to be in this play. <laughs> and so she's cool. like, you need to audition. Um, great. So I sent in a tape near last year. Um, and this was for the production that was a co-pro between Two River Theater in Red Bank, New Jersey and NatCo, um, which is helmed by Mia, who is the nurse in our production. But yeah, I sent in a video last winter and they needed more information after that and when they asked me my agents called me and said hey they want you to do another take of this I was like that's great I'm in Hong Kong right now seeing family so how do you want this to happen they were like we'll just do it as soon as possible so I was like all right so I'm with family being like where can I find a quiet place to tape this I rented a room um, in a family friend's like apartment building they had like um amenity section and they were like you can rent this room I was like okay great so I went in there 
there's some pretty crazy wallpaper in my video too, but <laughs> did the video and then left for dim sum right after. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Our interconnected world really makes incredible things possible. Yeah, and it's I, true. It's true. You know, the play on podcasts originated during the pandemic and nobody could be in a studio together because we were, we couldn't breathe the same air without right. risking our lives. So we had to send kits to all of the actors uh, to record remotely from just the type of rooms you're describing, closets in their own apartments or in friends' apartments or in hotels, wherever they happen to be, and padding up the rooms and making them soundproof and turning them into basically remote studios. Right. You know, and, and all of this was made possible because of the internet and some of the technology that's that's available today, which is pretty extraordinary. You know, like when we were doing pickups two weeks ago, Sada just kind of like, who was one of our audio engineers, like kind of slipped yeah. in. He was like, Sada oh, Haru I, Yagi. Yeah, yeah, he was like, I'm in Tokyo. And yes. like, I didn't really like process that until the end of the session. I was like, Sada, you're in Tokyo. And he was yeah. like, yeah, it's 4 a.m. here. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no. <laughs> and you're listening to us make bird sounds, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very surreal experiences. So you you got the part and and yeah. you did the you did the production in first in New Jersey or uh, so Natco is which is an acronym N A A T C O for mm -hmm. National Asian American Theater Company is that correct That's correct Did the original staging happen at Two River Theater in New Jersey or was it at a different theater It was it was at Two River first Two River uh, and then it went to New York. Yes, that's right. We were classic. off Broadway at the um, Lynn, uh, Lynn J. G. And Angleson right. is the theater's name. Which is where I saw you yeah. uh, in the in the production that, that I was so fortunate to get to, to uh, watch. How was the experience of uh, the podcast different from the stage version? I mean, apart from the obvious, right? You're not, Ooh. you're not interacting directly but, but what was that like going from stage having that, those those physical relationships and then converting into this audio only medium yeah i mean even the difference between the two river production to the downtown new york production to the podcasts are vast um i think the biggest thing is that our production is extremely physical so there's a lot of physical gags, sight gags. Um, there are, you know, physical humor, you know, we're throwing ourselves all over that stage. Everyone had knee pads on. Um, mm. So the question of how do we still make these things not only funny, but also like clear was really, really, I think a specific challenge to do in the podcast version. It's also really hard not to see each other, um, mm. to be in these booths and not be able to like relate. Um, Again, like our production was very, very relational. It was very like about the person seeing the other person and saying the words to each other. And so it was interesting to just like be able to only rely on the text and not necessarily the physical body. Um, I think that's that's a really big part of it. Another part is that our production is very reliant on audience reaction. So a lot of it was breaking the fourth wall and looking directly into the audience and giving all of our monologues to the audience, seeing how they responded and having that response fuel the rest of the monologue. Um, and not having the audience as my audience um, made just for different reads, made for different ways of speaking the text and relating again. 
join Play On Premium to get merch like t-shirts, hoodies, and coffee mugs, ad-free episodes, and bonus content video featuring interviews with the actors, producers, playwrights, and directors who brought it all to life. Go to ncpodcasts.com and subscribe to Play On Premium to support the art and the artists. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games. When you did the recordings, did you feel like the pre the, the previous experiences hindered that transition or did that did it help for hmm. your performance? The, the, like, do you wish, is there a part of you that wishes you could have come to it um, through audio only without the the theater experience or did you find it useful ultimately? I think they're so different. It's really hard to even say, I definitely don't think it hindered. It felt like it was almost like um, a, 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 another, we created another subsect of what we have created as Romeo and Juliet, this version. So it mm-hmm. just feels like another, it's like, it's like a baby of our other version. So um, it doesn't feel like it hindered. It's just a completely different thing. And you had a different Romeo when we did the podcast. That is true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, um, Major Kurda, who played Romeo in the stage production, was unavailable because he was doing a film. So uh, it, the role was recast. We got the the incredible Chris Bano to um, work with you and, and the rest of the cast. Mm-hmm. Tough transition for you? Chris is Exciting. so easy to fall in love with. So no, <laughs> <laughs> not a tough transition at all. Um, it was it was really great working with like all the new people that we had into like Mitch was also Mitch Winter was also new um Dice was new as my new father Dice Dice. Suji, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. um yeah I think it, it's Romeo and Juliet as a a piece in general is universal in so many ways and it was nice to have them come and be like welcomed in this like very zany version of it so yeah. I hope they had fun we had fun with them <laughs> It, it it definitely sounds like you had fun as we're going through all of the um, audio oh, and and uh, doing the mixes. It sounds terrific. Uh, so, what did you discover about Juliet? You've had mm. such an incredible journey with her in just a short amount of time, starting with Ron Daniels, then uh, meeting Hansel and becoming a part of the Two River Nat co-production, and then into the podcast. Yeah. Who is Juliet? Who is she? There's so much to say. I've had the great, great fortune of being able to play Juliet for the better part of this year. And I still feel like I have so much more to go into. Um, 
I think something that really sticks with me with this production in particular is how alone she feels um, in a very male dominated world with, you know, there's no, um, her only worth is marriage. And what a disappointment for someone who's so bright, who is so um, beautiful, intelligent, um, able to talk her way throughout, through any situation, logical, like, there are so many things about her that do not be are not explored, I think, in every production because Romeo and Juliet sometimes is taken as just kind of like the everlasting love story. And so there are a lot of things about Juliet that I feel like <laughs> sometimes I'm like, I wish you had her own play. Because <laughs> like there's just so much going on there. Um I think it's like a, a gift, obviously, to play a female character who has strength and has like, she wants to make her own decisions, but I think the world around her does not allow her to because of just the rules that are already put there. Her age, her sex, you know, all of it is just like working against her, even with her hardest tries. Um, I'm also really stricken by how funny and like witty she is. Just her wordplay is like unmatched. Um, and the way that she chooses to use her wordplay, like, you know, in the first scenes when she's with her mom, she's like, I'll give you five words, nothing more. Cause like, I don't think it's worth it. Um, why waste my precious breath on you when you're not going to understand my, my wordplay. But when she's with the nurse, it's like, brrr, like, she's like able to just like play and like, um, and tease her and, and, and work through that. And then meeting Romeo, having someone get you not only like your good wordplay, but your bad stuff too. It's like, oh, that's so awesome. Like you can see me as dorky and weird as I am and you still love me. Like that's amazing. And you can, you can match me, you challenge me. Um, that's just so exciting. How is she similar to you? Independent, logical, extremely logical. Um, fear of showing emotion too much. <laughs> um, I think she's, you know, I think that there's like a lot of her wanting to make something larger of herself sometimes in a space that doesn't always allow her to, that I do also, um, it resounds with me. Like I, I, I feel that too. You mentioned that you were in Hong Kong visiting family when mm. you got your call back to do the uh, stage production with Hansel and Dustin. Is your whole fam family from Hong Kong? Yeah. So my mom and my dad and I immigrated when I was a kid uh, because my dad went to seminary. So he was called to move to the States to go to seminary. So just the three of us came over. But my entire family, like my dad's siblings, my mom's relatives, everybody's in Hong Kong. Wow. Mm -hmm. So you were your father and mother were the first of their families to to come to America? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And how old were you? I was three when I came over. Do you have any memory at all, any deep-seated memory of being in Hong Kong as a, as a yeah a yeah as a child like I remember some you know playing at our old townhouse and stuff and but you know some of my like youngest memories like I remember specifically when we immigrated the first place we went was to a Walmart to get you know things 
And um, I was really excited because the comforter I wanted had a giant Mickey Mouse on it. So I was very excited about that. And like, I remember being at the checkout line and getting that. Um, I think I'm lucky enough too that we've been able to go back uh, with some frequency, not as much as like I would love to, but I've been able to go back in kind of like my formative years, like in elementary school. And then back again, when I was like hitting puberty in middle school. So you got some really great pictures from that time. And then uh, high school, college, and then like post-marriage, I had like my second wedding celebration there too, with our family. And that was mm. really nice. Mm -hmm. Are you bilingual? I am. I speak Cantonese. Wow. And uh, have you found a way to incorporate that into any of your work as an actor? Hmm. Um, you know, the way that I look is always going to be the, you know, being an Asian representation, even to have people come see me on stage is powerful enough, I think, in some ways. Um, I have not been able to speak Chinese in any of the work I've done, though, which is interesting. Um, I think Mandarin is more commonly spoken. So a lot more people do ask for Mandarin to be spoken in plays or or TV film. But um mm. Yeah, it was really, really fun to do. I like, honestly, in the best way, forget that our production was all Asian people because mm. it wasn't focused on like, I talked to me about this too. Like we weren't going to do Romeo and Juliet and everyone's wearing kimonos. Like there was no point in doing that. It's just a, a story. And like having these actors be able to tell them and also to see like, oh, these are all Asian actors. I, I really do think, you know, we hear it all the time, but representation does matter because you're able to see, you know, an Asian woman play Juliet and you're able to see an Asian man play Paris Tibble. Like, you know, you these are things that are so widely on the human spectrum in terms of thoughts and feelings and intentions. And like, yeah, Asian people obviously have all of those thoughts and feelings and intentions as well. So yeah, being part of an all Asian cast of this kind of take it for granted sometimes because I'm kind of just like, yeah, it was an amazing production. And that's why it was amazing. Not only because we were all Asian too. Did your parents get to uh, New York or New Jersey to see you? Mm -hmm. My mom saw it in New York. Yeah. She loved it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of theater artists that I've spoken to and worked with over the years have come from some type of theological background, whether their family, I mean, there are many, many actors and writers, especially uh, that I know who either majored in theology or came from uh, families that were just steeped in religion. You know, Marcus yeah. Gardley comes to, to mind, um, who did our translation of, of King Lear. Uh, and I just find it so fascinating how many people seem to have uh, this, this sort of background or basis in mm not just sort of, not just in a religious identity, but really being in, involved, you know, in the choir of the church, like you were, or having a a, a parent who is a part of the clergy. Yeah. Do you find that you draw on it as an artist in any way? Hmm. Or that it's, that it, um that you react to it as an artist? I think I definitely react to it. I mean, it's like, so um, ingrained in a, like a part of who I am. You know, even like not being a regular attendee of the church, like church is very theatrical. Um, mm -hmm. Going to a service is very theatrical. There's a, there is a, there's an overture. There's an act one and an act two. And then we end with the benediction. You know, there's a lot going on there that I think that 
feels comforting to me. Mm-hmm. I just saw um, two different pieces come to mind when I think about religion and theater. The Christians at Play Arts Horizons, like uh, I saw that a couple years ago and just seeing the pulpit and seeing the choir and like, you know, there's a part of me that's like, oh, I recognize this like to my core. And then um, I just saw Pray, uh, Ars Nova did this amazing piece that centers on um, femmes in the church and black femmes specifically, and how so much of the church has been so integral in, in giving black femmes a voice, um, especially in times of like slavery, like the church lets women and femmes know, like you do have a place because you mother, you also lead, um, you also are a part of the church in so many different ways. And I think that was just such a different way to look at religion and church in general, because you think of it being such a patriarchal led institution. Um, but yeah, like religion has always influenced me. Church influences me. I think it's very interesting. Um, belief sways so many things that happen in our world, obviously. So yeah, it does. And also historically, like you can see how much as the church changes, how does that change the history of how people react to certain things as well. So yeah, I do think it affects me as an artist. It's so interesting also with Shakespeare because Shakespeare was, you know, religion was a a life or death uh, identifier in his time and how Shakespeare tries to thread the needle between Protestants, Catholics, and, you know, all all of the, the iterations of the of of people's identity mm-hmm. uh trying to serve the monarchy um trying to serve queen elizabeth and and uh be political with references yes. to religion uh and how much religion played a role in his own education for sure uh, and how that came through in in his work and his humanism I, I I don't I'm never able to really find, you know, if Shakespeare had a, a loyalty to any religion hmm. or the other, but I know that um uh you know there's a great book, Will in the World, that talks about how uh his family would have been and was they were uh treated very unfairly because of their identity, I believe as Catholics. I don't hmm. have to do checking on it i'd be curious about will in the world is that just basically talking about his like his life within his personal life and his like his beliefs and such yeah yeah just just what was going on in his world when he was when he was alive and writing yeah and 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 literally the life or death of uh in in the choices that he made as a writer and and in just in places that he chose to live or travel. When you're talking about religion too, I'm thinking about just tying it all back. Juliet, as, yeah. um, as she is extremely um, religious and cares deeply about making a vow. Vows are holy, like being able to have these promises and being able to like be married in the church. And, to, you know, she she goes through so much turmoil in terms of like, I have made a vow. If I let that go, I will be, of course, like I will, but it's worse than death because I will be going to hell. Like if I do not, 
continue my my truth is so integral to who she is and like that was something I, I thought was pretty amazing for somebody that like is depicted a lot as kind of a teenager sneaking around so many of the things that she does are are based on holy values um and not just kind of like frivolity <clears throat> so serious for a 13 year old where do you think Juliet sees the truth of her parents hmm what do you mean well she rejects them mm -hmm. and and it seems like she makes that choice in the story itself like she's she's almost there and then she she pretty much re revolts against them I, I i mean that's at least how how it comes across to me what do you think it is in lord and lady capulet that she sees that she chooses to reject <laughs> In this version, it feels like their marriage is a marriage of convenience. She doesn't see true love between the two of them. And also that they treat her like an object to be able to be sold immediately. There's no thought process about like her, her wants, her needs. Um, and I think that when she meets Romeo, she finally sees somebody like sees her and wants her as a whole being to be loved and to be cherished and to be wanted. And so... Yeah, I just think that like her parents, although they may have the best of intentions of what works for their world, I don't think that they treat her well. I mean, it's a very different thing that, you know, modern day, obviously, like that is how we feel. Back then, they, they had political gain. They had they had financial gain. There's so many other things and aspects that they're thinking of as they're making these kind of deals with Paris in particular. But yeah, I, I think that the only person at that host at home that sees her is the nurse until the nurse tells her to, I think it's best that you marry with Paris. Then she's mm -hmm. like, I have nobody. Nobody is actually looking out for my heart or 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 what I want or or my happiness. Um, everyone looks bigger picture at the, outside of her. Yeah, the, the, the nurse basically departs from the path of honesty and truthfulness with Juliet. For sure. At least, in, as the way, in the way that Juliet perceives it, and I think that Juliet is raised on honesty and truth because the nurse is the one who's taught it to her. She has mm -hmm. always been the one to say, you know, these are the ways that we. I want you to live your life. Like I think her only true parent is the nurse, and for her, her to go against everything she's ever taught her, I mean, yeah, it's it's it is the biggest heartbreak. So Romeo sees mm -hmm. Juliet for who she truly is. I think he does. And I think he also, even if he's learning who she is, I think he gives her space to be who she is. I don't think he puts her in some sort of <laughs> metaphorical box the way that I think other people do. I think he's amazed by her. And I think he he wants more of that. And so he gives her the space to be able to be herself and to feel the vulnerability with him and to dream. I don't think that she had ever thought before meeting him that she could dream bigger than what was going to be prescribed to her. And what is it about Romeo himself that she loves besides <laughs> how he sees her? Yeah, I think vulnerability is a big part of it. Like his ability to make the worst rhymes and to 
be so embarrassing and to to be bold you know he shows up knowing that death is on the way and he still does this dramatic big act of love and and you know she logically the first thing she thinks is like you have to go you cannot be here but there's that little tiny thing in the back of her mind it's like he's here like that's so wonderful you know no one's ever done that for me um these kind of extreme acts of love that just kind of I mean she, at, at the heart of it she is a teenage girl like she, it's like this is like the best most exciting thing ever but also you have to go like this is not safe um I think he's not like anyone she's known because even though he does come from the same kind of maybe a little less financial level than her like she's used to these kind of stuffy dudes that are like I have nothing to talk to you about you're boring me and then here comes this guy that's like goofy and odd and and romantic and all these things that I don't think so that she I think he represents something again that is outside the world that she's been prescribed which is you are going to marry somebody of the same financial status you will look exactly like your mom. You will live within those castle walls instead um, versus Romeo perhaps offers something that is more akin to like a good meal and a good song and being able to travel and being able to see the world for the first time. I don't think that she really even dreamed, even if she had read it in a book, I don't think she actually thought she could actually see the world ever. And I think he offers that to her. He freedom. is freedom. Yeah. Yes, he is freedom. That's true. And the two of them, I mean, is it fair to say that they die for the truth? Absolutely. I think the death is success. I mean, that wasn't plan A, but mm -hmm. I think that at the end of it, if I can't have him, what's freedom anyways, you know? Mm hmm yeah, I, I, I remember when we were working on this in the podcast, the idea that her last lines, instead of being out of desperation and fear, um, when she realizes people are coming to the graveyard, she's hearing noises and, and she's looking around for the dagger. It's almost like, instead of this fear, and I have to get out of here because I don't want to get caught, it's, it's relief. It's, oh, I remember the poison didn't work, but the dagger is here. I still have this chance for freedom with my one true love. And this is my happy ending, um, which I do think is a different maybe interpretation of that. But it's true. I think that, like you said, they die for freedom and for truth and for the honesty of their relationship together. So a lot of it, I do think, is kind of a relief at the very end. You worked, as you said, with Ron Daniels. Uh, mm -hmm. on this role using the original text of, of Shakespeare, I assume. Yes. How was it going from that to Hansel's translation? And mm. what 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 worked for you, what didn't work for you in in that transition from working on Shakespeare's original text to this translation? So with Hansel's translation, um I believe I'm correct in this, but the the premise of what Play On did was to make this play like how Elizabethans would have heard it in their time, but for our time. Mm -hmm. So um, Hansel's still stuck with the IAM uh, within the play. So we still are going within iambic pentameter. And I think the thing that does work a lot more is that it you when you hear things, you have a more immediacy to it versus I think sometimes in the original, there are times where I have to be like, what does that mean? 
not to say that, you know, Hansel, sometimes I am like, what does that mean? But there is something more colloquial with the, tr with the translation. And just for the modern ear, you just have a, a quicker understanding of the meaning of these words. Um, yeah, I, again, I don't think that one thing works better than the other. Um, I think that translations are always going to happen. You know, <clears throat> I think there's always like kind of the conversation of like, does it need to be translated? The original is the original for a reason. And the original will always be the original. It will always stay. But like, how amazing is it that Shakespeare has inspired so many different translations so that so many more people can understand it? I don't think it, um, it doesn't hurt the original. I think it only helps people to have more access to it, if anything else. Because again, like Shakespeare for me, even to go see my husband perform it, sometimes I was like, what is going on? Like, I'm not sure I have the prerequisite knowledge for this because there is a lot of reliance on history knowledge and, and religious knowledge. So sometimes watch some of the plays specifically about the wars. I am like, what's going on here? But <clears throat> being able to do translations, I think just gives this work in general, a broader audience. And I think that's a win for everybody. Because if more people are able to understand it, we're not like gatekeeping Shakespeare, you know? So like people have the ability to enjoy something that maybe seemed daunting for them to enjoy before. Because I think that is a big part of it. Like Shakespeare sometimes feels like, it's like, because it is, <laughs> it's funny. It's like, it is fine art, but it was also written for not fine people. Like, and, and so like having people be able to listen to a translation, I think is like a great access point for everybody. Do you have your heart set on any particular role? Do you want to go back and do more of Juliet? Uh, do you have another mm. Shakespearean character that you're that's calling to you? Yeah, I would love to do more. I love it. It's like a delicious meal. Like it's so fun to do. Um, I'd like to do a villain next. <laughs> I'm not sure what. I'd like to do something duplicitous. Like, you know, you don't think necessarily that but I would love to do that. Um, Caesar comes to mind, uh, characters in Caesar. Um, I would love to do Juliet again. Uh, I know I'm getting <laughs> a little old, but, <laughs> but you know. Not on audio. <laughs> yeah, that's good to know. Um, yeah, I would love to. It's, it's, it feels endless. Obviously yeah. Hamlet is something up there too. Um, as as I've said, you can't play Hamlet until you've played Hamlet. So mm -hmm. that's up there too. Yeah. But yeah. But first you have to get through Broadway and all, yeah, yeah. all your Broadway gigs. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure talking to you, Dorcas Lung. I really cannot thank you enough for the beautiful work that you did on this podcast series and for all of the uh, time you've shared with us today. It's been a real uh, privilege. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Listeners, you can now reach me directly by email. Yes, it's happened. I have succumbed. I am opening myself to communicating with our audience, and I am happy to get your emails. Any comments, questions, suggestions, reactions to any of the work we're doing at Next Chapter Podcasts or the Play On Podcasts in particular, I will be happy to read your comments, and I will be happy to reply. My email address for audience inquiries and comments is michael at ncpodcasts.com. Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L at N as in next, C as in chapter, podcasts with an S at the end, dot com. 
You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcast at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcast.com, where you can find other Play On Podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts like The 500, Indecent with Kiki Anderson, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and my producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. It really helps. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Next chapter podcasts.